Greetings, Cap fans, and welcome to episode 89 of the Captain America Comic Book Fans Podcast. I'm your host, Rick Verbanis, and as always, I'm joined by the best gosh darn co-host out there. That will be Mr. Bob Lucius. Hey, Bob. Welcome to another top 10 that we're going to be going through today's episode. We've got the top 10 Captain America other retcons part two counting down from. Counting down from number five, going on the way to number one, voted by you, our listeners. But not really. No, no voting was involved, Rick. No. No, no, I just pulled these out of my butt. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> no, or, Rick, some, I, or some would say you're coccyx. <laughs> <laughs> oh, flashback. Flashback to the last episode. Or uh, last episode. Uh, vocab test today, folks. You got a quiz. You know, Rick, I was thinking about uh, what you just said in uh, part one of our uh, top 10 uh, retcon show and how you reached out to Catherine uh, Schuler grunwald and, and you mentioned how you had a very sort of, you know, uh, just what was the word, uh, the adjective you used? I don't know. But you had a, a nice conversation with uh, uh, Catherine in episode 11. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was the one episode that uh, that I wasn't there by your side, man. I still carry, I carry that burden with me. Yeah, you know, it is. Uh, that was a trivia question I think we had back during mm-hmm. one of our Q&A uh, episodes. Uh, what was the one episode that Bob did not was not the best gosh darn co-host. And that was uh, the Catherine Schuler Grunwald interview. Um, and, and that's probably because the word I was using that you couldn't remember was intimate. Yeah, because I didn't it, want to say that. Yeah, yeah. Especially after we just talked about coccyx. Yeah, no, no, come on now. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> Don't go on there. No, it was, it was a really uh, nice conversation between me and Kat um, talking about... Uh, you know, Grunwald and, and she's a, a lovely lady. Um, she does, um, a lot of cool stuff going on right now. Um, she's got this something called, uh, I think it's called Cosmoda cosplay runway, uh, which is pretty cool. Um, I think it's kind of like, um, cosplay meets model runway kind of thing. Uh, you, I'm so, liking that. Yeah. Yeah. That she probably, probably check that out. Yeah. yeah. She's, She's a real, real interesting lady. Um, and so we, we had a great conversation back then d- during, during that episode, but yeah, that's uh, you know, and, and, and I think it's a great opportunity for folks. If, yeah, if, if you'd have, if you missed that episode, go back, listen to it, but then follow it up with episode 82, which is our interview with Jason Olson and his book about uh, Mark Grunwald's run in Captain America. Oh yeah, and I told her about the about that. She's very excited about listening to that episode herself because um, she had an interesting uh, time, uh, a good oh, time good. talking with Jason. Yeah. She she loves Jason. Yeah, that'd be a nice. That's a, that'd be like a nice uh, weekend treat for somebody, right? Those uh, those episodes back to back and a cold one. Exactly. Um, so Bob, I don't I don't have a whole lot to to go over before we we get to the second part of the top ten list. Um, I will say, um, for all those out there who go on to our Apple uh, iTunes 
um, and rate for us uh, our five star review. We truly do appreciate that. That helps us get recognized, uh, gets uh, some more people out there to to check us out. Um, so please do leave a, a review. Uh, if you if you leave a five star review, we'll be happy to read that here on the podcast. And then also, I just want to point out too, um, you know, we have this really lively group of of cap fans on our Captain America comic book fans Facebook group, uh, which you know we have over four thousand uh, cap comic book fans, and it's such a lively group. Uh, we've got you know new posts going multiple multiple new posts going every single day people talking about their comics talking about talking about upcoming stuff um uh, sharing articles uh posting images and then there's all the the nostalgia that goes along with it whether it be classic toys or um you know mentioning uh you know paraphernalia and t-shirts and you know, it's just if you're a lover of Captain America, and of course you are because you're listening to this this show. Um, if you haven't already checked out the Facebook group, do yourself a favor, go on Facebook and go into groups and sh- search for Captain America comic book fans, and then um, be sure to join so that we can chat with you there. Absolutely, and you know, one of the, one of my favorite features is uh, T-shirt Tuesdays, Rick. Right, where people get a chance to to show off their they're Captain America garb. Love those things. Yeah, I think you've won once or twice. Yeah, yeah. But now, I, you know, I, I've, I've run through all my T-shirts. But, man, there's some folks out there with a lot of T-shirts. And it's just great great to see folks wearing them in the pictures that they post. Yeah. You there, see what I'm yeah. wearing today, Bob? I, I, I do. I do. That's what made me think about it. So, You want to describe it to the listeners, Bob? It uh, looks like it's a, is that a Kirby cap? Uh, come, yep. Coming off the, coming right off your t-shirt and a very three-dimensional look. Yeah. Yeah. My daughter got this for me for, for Christmas a couple of years ago. So always, nice. always think of her when I put it on. Nice. Nice. So Bob, let's get to part two of the top 10 other Captain America retcons. And do you want to just remind people um, what we're not covering in this, uh, as opposed to, to what we plan to cover. And by all means, if you haven't listened to part one, check it out. That was episode 84. Right, right. So Rick, you know, the idea behind this show about this top 10 was that we're going to do the ones that most people don't think of, right? It's, it's, not the, it's not the retcons that maybe pop into your head when you think Captain America retcon, right? So we're not like, we're not talking about Cap getting frozen in ice, right? We're not talking about Sam Wilson's, you know, origin story, you know, the whole snap retcon and the retcon of the retcon. Uh, we're not talking about Cap, you know, does he kill bad guys or not? Does he use guns or not? Uh, and we're not going to really talk about, you know, the whole how many caps were there? There was Steve Rogers. There was Will, there was Naslin. There was Jeff Mace. There was William Burnside. We're not going to touch on those because we ooh, touched ooh. on them. Are we going to talk about uh, Bucky and Winter Soldier? We're not going to talk about Bucky Winter Soldier. You know, we're not going to talk about Bucky coming back to life, right? So those are they're all they're all important, right? We all know those are important retcons. Um, but, you know, we've talked about them in different podcasts uh, and uh, we've reviewed the source material. We've talked to the writers and the artists. And, uh, you know, there's lots of 
places out there you can learn more about those retcons. So we're going to talk about some that maybe are a little bit off the beaten path. Yeah, I, I agree. These these are going to be ones for the diehard Captain America fans out there. The ones who have read, you know, Cap over the decades have been like, wait a minute. Wait, a, that's, not, that's not how it happened before. Now all of a sudden it's different. So we're going to talk about that and give some of our thoughts and, and feedback on it too. So maybe, Bob, do you think it would be good for us to start with a recap of uh, part one? Yeah, that makes sense to me, Rick. All right. So uh, number 10 was Steve Rogers' dad was an ugly and abusive drunk. So we, we talked about that. Yep. Um, number nine, Steve always wanted to be an artist. I think it's pronounced artiste. Is that what it? Uh, yeah. 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 I uh, I think you're wrong, but okay. Um, number eight. Uh, so Sharon Carter uh, wasn't really dead. So we got into that um, and bringing about bringing her back. Um, speaking of Sharon, number seven. How are Sharon and Peggy related exactly? That was an interesting conversation. Oh, it sure uh, was. Yeah. That certainly changed over the years. Uh, number six, you uh, you brought something to new light for me because I was, again, I, I, I'm self-acclaimed, uh, not a huge golden age reader. Um, you brought to light Betty Ross or also known as Betsy Ross or even known as Golden Girl. Um, in the case of the disappearing girlfriend and how here's, here's this, uh, female co-lead, if you will, um, or at least, uh, you know, an important, um, sub-character that somehow just got forgotten. Uh, so anyway, if you haven't listened to part one, highly recommend you go back and listen to that because we covered all of those retcons in episode 84 so bob mm -hmm. for those who are like eh, eh, that sounds like too much work i don't want to go back and listen to all that can you help explain again just at a high level what a retcon is yeah so you know a retcon you know it can be used in comics we hear it a lot in comics but it's not just a comic trick it's it's a, it's a literary term right it means like it's it's when you uh, you go back to an established narrative and you make a change. Maybe it's just an adjustment. Maybe it's uh, it's changing something completely or taking it away and replacing it with something so that it, it essentially disrupts the continuity. Right. It changes it into something else entirely. Um, and in some cases, as I said, it might be a minor change, uh, but in some cases it can be a really significant one. And we've seen both in Captain America um, throughout the last 80 years. That's a pretty gosh darn good explanation to me. Uh, all right, so let's get to it, shall we? Uh, all right. And, and so we're going to go, we're going to do the remaining five of the top 10 other Captain America retcons. Number five, Albert Malik. Who? Who, who, who the heck was that? <laughs> 
Yeah, right. You know, when when listeners are, are listening to this, I, I every time you introduce one of the retcons, I want people to go, oh, I didn't see that one coming. <laughs> All right. Right. Thanks, that's thanks the, Quicksilver. Right. That's the one. Yeah, that's right. That, not the obvious one. So let you know, let's face it, right? The red call the red uh, the red skull was with without a doubt Cap's biggest nemesis in the Golden Age comics, right? So he appeared in nine different stories across five different titles, not including Captain America Comics number one, because that was the story that featured the imposter Red Skull, George Maxon. So far, so good, right? All right. But then we have that pesky storyline that begins with Tales of Suspense 79. Uh, that's the one that the Red Skull's first modern uh, day appearance, you know, as opposed to the earlier Tales of Suspense stories that were flashbacks. Mm-hmm. Oh, by the way, if uh, anyone wants to catch that, we covered that in episode 12, uh, where we covered Tales of Suspense 79 through 81, which was, as you pointed out, the Red Skull in the, in the current story and happened to also be the first Cosmic Cube. Right. Yeah. So in Tales of Spence 79, the Red Skull reveals to Steve Rogers that he, too, had been in suspended animation since the fall of Berlin in 1945. And he had only recently been reawakened as well. Okay, but if that was the case, then who the heck was the Red Skull going up against Captain America in Young Men number 24? which uh, came out in 1953 and number 27, which came out in 1954. Or uh, how about Captain America's Weird Tales 74, which came out in 1949, uh, which was where the Red Skull's already, you know, he's in hell, right? Right. Yeah, he's he's in hell. Right. So let's um, let's set aside the Weird Tales story, which eh, I think that was just too difficult to explain. But what about the other two, right? Now, as it turns out, Marvel was able to paper over that continuity gap just as handily as they did in the story, uh, uh, you know, with William Burnside that ran from Captain America 153 to 156, where they sort of explained and retconned those 1950s cap stories that Atlas put out. As a perfect counterpoint to the commie smasher cap, the 1950s Red Skull was revealed not to be Johann Schmidt, but rather this guy named Albert Malik. You know, as we learn in uh, at last, you know, after many years in Captain America Annual number 13, which came out in September 1994, the Red Skull of the 1950s was a Soviet spy recruited by Soviet Premier Georgi Malenkov. And he was asked to adopt the Red Skull's persona and go out and be uh, sort of a, a warrior for, for the International Communist Front. So his first mission was to retrieve a lockbox that once belonged to Hitler. And that story is what we read about in Young Men 24. At least it was retconned that way. And what we see in Young Men 24 was the Red Skull. And now we know it's Malik. And he's trying to get into the UN because he thinks that the UN is in possession of Hitler's lockbox. And that's where he goes up against William Burnside and Jack Monroe as Bucky. So this annual, annual number 13, also explains how the events detailed in Captain America 78. So that's another 1950s uh, cap story with William Burnside and Jack Monroe. Hitted 
Cap and Bucky against the superpowered Soviet agent Electro. So both of those stories now have been retconned thanks to Annual 13. Not the Red Skull that we know and love. Well, no, uh, Johann Schmidt, but this Albert <laughs> Malik guy, right? So we read a, a bit more about this communist Red Skull in Solo Avengers number six, which came out in May 1988. And that story pits Hawkeye and Peregrine of Silver Sable International and Sandman, of all people. They team up to bring down this Red Skull imposter operating out of Algeria, and they send him packing off to prison. Now, when Albert Malik in prison learns of the supposed death of the real Red Skull in Captain America issue number uh, 300 in 1984, he decides he's going to break out of prison, right? And he's going to readopt this Red Skull persona. That was in issue 347. But he learns the hard way, as, as many folks do that go up against the Red Skull, that Schmidt isn't really dead. And he's not particularly happy about this Albert Malik dude impersonating him again. Apparently, imitation is decidedly not a perceived uh, flattery in this case. And so Malik meets his end at the hands of the scourge of an underworld agent and the employee of the Red Skull. It's a, it's a tremendous scene where, where Malik meets his, uh, his doom getting shot out of the helicopter. Mm-hmm. So Malik has mentioned one last time that I can recall in Captain America 383. You maybe remember that story uh, in, in, this, in this backup story, Bad to the Bone. It's a story that chronologically takes place before Captain America 350. And in that, we read about a team of assassins led by Brock Rumlow, Crossbones, who's sent to assassinate Red Skull. And of course, they're all caught in dispatch, thanks to uh, Zola and Doughboy, right? But he, under interrogation, he reveals that he's been sent by the Red Skull. And of course, the Red Skull is like, I'm the Red Skull. Who are you talking about? And it's at this point that Crossbones realized he's been duped by Malik. And that begins Crossbones' long association with the real Red Skull. Now, Rick, this is where it gets crazy, right? Because one of the most interesting sort of byproducts, the collateral implications of this shoehorning of Albert Malik as the 1950s Red Skull plays out in Amazing uh, Spider-Man Annual Number 5, which came out way back in November 1968. In that, Peter Parker heads to Algeria to figure out the circumstances that led to his parents' death. Now, when that story was originally public, uh, published, it appeared that we were talking about the real Red Skull, Johann Schmidt, but retroactively, we now know it was Malik who ordered the deaths of Richard and Mary Parker. Dun, dun, dun. Right, exactly, right? So this is a case where like a retcon has all these ripple effects, even in other titles amazing yeah that is uh not something you know i gave a whole lot of thought to um and and why is that name familiar was malik used somewhere else well there was the name of uh in in you know the agents of shield there was the name of a character maybe that's what i'm thinking of yeah i think it was uh the guy played by um who was not uh I can't remember his name now, but uh, he he was in a few seasons. Uh, You're talking about Gideon Malik. Yeah. 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 He was like a a leader of of Hydra. 
Yes, that's right. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So Gideon Malik is uh, quite far different than uh, Albert Malik. And Albert Malik. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. My bad. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry for confusion, everybody. Yeah. You know, that annual uh, Captain American annual number 13 is a, is a great book. There's, I think there's about five sort of connected stories and I'm pretty, I think they're all written uh, or at least all of them, but maybe one written by Roy Thomas, uh, which you know, is funny. If you go through a lot of these retcons that we're talking about, the really sort of uh, substantial ones have his, his imprint on them all. But in any case, that's a, that's a great angle. A lot of fun. You said number 13? Number 13, yeah. Yeah, I think, uh, I think I have that, but I don't think I've ever read it. Oh, yeah. It's got, it's got uh, Spirit of 76. It's got The Patriot. It's got uh, Red Guardian of World War II. It's got Khrushchev, you know. It's got Bulgarin. It's got Malenkov. Oh, yeah. Roosevelt, I think. Maybe Truman. And of course, Bucky. And of course, Bucky, right. Yeah. Yeah, I'll have to check that out. Good stuff there, Bob. All right. So let's get to number four on the top 10 list. In uh, this one, we're, we're cap who? <laughs> right. Now, look. From the get-go, right, in part one, I said, we're not going to talk about Cap getting frozen in the ice, you know, mm-hmm. and getting reawoken in, uh, in Avengers number four. But this kind of touches on that one a bit, right? I mean, we can certainly agree. I think nobody would disagree that one of the greatest retcons in the entire Marvel comic universe was Cap getting frozen in ice in the closing months of World War II and not being reawoken until the Avengers found him floating in the North Atlantic some 20 or so years later. This was how Stanley and Jack Kirby resurrected the Golden Age hero and explained away his long absence. I mean, we've already touched on what that meant for other Golden Age cap appearances during the post-World War II era, era and in the 1950s, right? William Burnside, Jeff Mays, William Maslin, we know all that. But there's one detail in that Avengers number four reintroduction of Captain America that gives most fans, well, pause. Now, if you recall, In Avengers 4, Namor, the Submariner, happens upon a tribe of Eskimos worshiping a mysterious figure frozen within a large block of ice. Mm -hmm. And and in a a peak of anger and spite, Namor frightens off the villagers and hurls the block of ice into the sea where it floats away and slowly begins to melt, eventually revealing uh, the man hidden within. Now, the Avengers happen to be passing nearby in their submarine, and they haul the floating man aboard, only to discover it's the long-lost Captain America. Shortly thereafter, they return to New York City, where the Avengers are turned to statues by an alien. So Cap apprehends the fiend, and in the course of questioning him, learns that the visitor from a distant galaxy has essentially been blackmailed by the Submariner. And in return for turning the Avengers into stone, Namor has promised to free the alien ship which has been trapped on the ocean floor for centuries. So upon hearing this, Cap says, Submariner? Hmm, I seem to remember that name from the dim past. Hmm. Hmm. So later in the story, Cap observes the Avengers battling against Namor and a handful of Atlantean warriors, and he thinks to himself, Their courage is undeniable. Even the Submariner is a fearless foe. If there had been such men in my day, 
what epic battles we might have fought. Right. You know, so shortly after that, Cap and Namor at last square off against each other. And neither seems to recognize each other. Yeah. So that always kind of threw me. Like, how can that be? I mean, surely they had become acquainted during the war, right? Or or had at least heard of each other? Right. Now, I mean, there's really two questions here, right? The first is, why didn't Cap recognize Namor? And second, why didn't Namor recognize Cap? So to answer these questions, we have to go back to the Golden Age. Right. I mean, didn't didn't they meet in those old timely books? Well, the answer to that is, well, it's both yes and no. So the first time Cap and the Submariner actually meet in the Golden Age, uh, these are the timely books, was in the All Winners number 19, which came out in September 1946. But based on what we know now, Steve Rogers was already frozen in the ice by the time the All Winners squad assembled in this book as well as in issue 21. So this would have been William Nasland as Captain America rather than Steve Rogers. Now, Cap and Namor also meet again in Young Men 26, which came out in March 1953. But likewise, we now know that that Captain America wasn't Steve. It was William Burnside, the Cap of the 1950s. So maybe Steve never actually met Namor before the events of Avengers 4. All right, wait a minute, okay? What about what went down in Avengers 71? That came out in 1969. Oh, yeah, that's right. In that story, the Black Panther, Vision, and Yellow Jacket are sent by Kang back to 1941 to square off against Captain America, Human Torch, and the Submariner, which means that Steve Rogers not only knew Namor during World War II, but he fought alongside him. You know, this story is also explored in Invaders Annual Number 1, which came out in August 1977. But because Avengers 71 came out five and a half years before the introduction of the Invaders team name in Giant Sized Invaders, they didn't yet go by this name in Avengers 71. Right. I mean, we did cover this in one of our podcasts. Uh, I want to say episode 62. Right. We covered annual 61. So. um, So if they were already working together in Avengers 71, then that wasn't their first meeting. Right. That's right. So clearly they must have met prior to that. Now, Roy Thomas went on to show Steve Rogers and Namor's first meeting in Captain America 423, which came out January 1994. Though a different version of that first encounter is told by Ed Brubaker in the Marvels Project, issue number six, which came out in 2010. So interesting fact about Captain America 423. Um, that was the one issue that Mark Grunewald didn't write in like a 10-year period. So Roy Thomas came in with this fill-in story that you're talking about. Correct Mundo. So Steve did know. Namor during World War II. So, okay, what gives? I mean, like, how come he didn't recognize him during that fight in Avengers 4? Uh, Who knows, Rick? You know, maybe his brain was a bit fuzzy after being frozen for 20 years. I mean, maybe he just wasn't running on all cylinders yet. I mean, clearly in uh, Tales of Suspense 77, you know, his memory of, of Mademoiselle was still a bit hazy as well. Okay. All right. I could, I could buy that. 
So what about Namor? Like, right? Why didn't the Submariner remember Steve or any Captain America for that matter, since he'd served along at least four different ones, right? I mean, surely Mm -hmm. he would have at least remembered the uniform. Yeah, you would think, right? I mean, but we do know from Fantastic Four number four, which came out before Avengers 4 and Submariner number one, which came out in May of 1968, as well as uh, the saga of the Submariner issue number seven, which came out in 1989. Those came out, you know, well after Avengers 4, right? We know from those three issues that Namor had suffered amnesia since, chronologically speaking, around 1959. Oh, that, 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 that lucky. <laughs> uh, there you go. Right? Yeah. It's yeah. so common in the comics. You know what else is really common back then? Quicksand. <laughs> I was so worried about that as a kid. I know, right? It was yeah. either quicksand or amnesia. That one <laughs> of those two was going to get you. Right. <laughs> so we know that you know Namor suffered from this amnesia, right? And his his memories were restored only when Johnny Torch dropped him in the ocean in, in uh, Fantastic Four number four. Still, those events occurred before his encounter with the Avengers in Avengers number three and number four. So his memories of Cap should have been returned. So, but, you know, maybe like Cap, he wasn't running on all cylinders yet either. Wow. Uh, Continuity can be hard, Rick. Yeah. So none of that was explained. (laughs) It was more described as what happened. Uh, So well done, Bob, for taking us through that. Um, Because quite frankly, that always something kind of rang with me, you know, when we were covering that back in the day. Um, wow. It's like, it's like going through this top 10 list is going through like Rick and Bob's greatest hits. Right. Because we, uh, we covered Avengers four all the way back in episode number two. Right. Yeah. And I remember covering that back in episode two and, and, and saying, how, how does he not, remember but yeah eh, you know what it is in this case you know usually a retcon tries to explain something away but you know the retcon here is there is no retcon they they changed it such that it erased an entire history without you know without appropriately explaining it yeah i want to say probably in when avengers 4 was written they didn't care as much about continuity back then right well you're right yeah Yeah. and yet but but they haven't yet you know normally they may they may not a lot of things they didn't care back you know when these books were first reissued in the silver age but eventually (laughs) you were more often the case with roy thomas prodding the way you know they found a way to fix these later on but this is one that they ever really got around to explaining i think well yeah all right so let's get to number three uh on the list and this is how Bucky met Steve Rogers. I mean, was it really an accident? Oh, yeah. Now, we all know the story of when Bucky became Cap's partner, right? That tale is first told on page eight of Captain America Comics, number one. Hit the newsstands in December 1940. So Bucky is a young orphan regimental mascot that stumbles into Steve Rogers' tent while Steve is changing into his Captain America uniform. Naturally, Steve has no choice but to allow this young teenager drawn to look about 13 or 14 years old to become his sidekick in combat. 
This accidental meeting and Cap's taking of the young lad under his wings was recalled in the comics on more than one occasion. Now, we all know, thanks to Avengers 4, how Bucky met his supposed end towards the end of World War II, when he fell to his death off an explosive-laden aerial drone stolen by Baron Zemo. It's a story retold in detail in Volume 5, Issues 5 through 6. Throughout much of the Silver Age, but especially those first dozen issues of his own series, Steve Rogers wrestled with the guilt he bore for allowing this mere boy to go into combat at his side. And for Bucky's, well, let's just say it, almost foreseeable death. But was he a mere boy? I mean, the revelation that Bucky wasn't really dead and had been turned into the Winter Soldier, a story told in Captain America, Volume 5, Issues 9 through 14. Oh, by the way, for our listeners... We did explore that in episodes 19 and 21. Right. So, I mean, that revelation was huge, right? I mean, it shocked everybody. And it was uh, certainly one of those, those, those retcons that has continued to ripple and influence um, Marvel Cinematic Universe as well as the Marvel Comic Universe ever since. <clears throat> but a second revelation was almost nearly as significant, at least in my view. I mean, as it turns out, Bucky wasn't as young as we were led to believe. And his accidental discovery of Cap's true identity, well, it wasn't accidental at all. When Captain America number 12, volume five again, came out in 2005, we learned that Bucky had actually been 16 years old when he and Steve first met. That's only four years younger than Steve himself at the time. And we also learned that he was far more than just the regimental mascot. He had been personally selected by the brass to be Cap's partner and had received extensive hand-to-hand combat and commando training, the same training that Steve himself had received. In fact, Bucky, as we learned, was intended to add a little something extra to the duo. As General Chester Phillips suggests in a flashback, if he gets his hands a little dirtier than most soldiers when no one's looking, well, that'll be our secret, right? At the end of issue 14, we see the actual first meeting when Bucky and Steve are initially introduced. And when Bucky learns that Steve is in fact Captain America, and it's a very different scene than the one portrayed in previous accountings. I also remember there was kind of like a version of that in the miniseries that um, uh, Fabian Nicaea and Kevin McGuire did, you know, the adventures of Captain America, that four issue miniseries. Right. And they kind of delved into that a little bit more detail. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And we read a bit more about this, uh, this meeting and how they got to know each other and, and the training that went on and, uh, and uh, how Bucky and Captain America teamed up in the Captain American Bucky run. That's the legacy uh, issue number 620 to 628 that came out in 2011 to 2012, also written by Ed Brubaker. And in 620, uh, we learn a heck of a lot more about Bucky's backstory, including about his sister, Rebecca, or Becca, that we first learned about in the 1991 Marvel Holiday Special that was written by Len Kaminsky, and subsequently uh, in Captain America, Volume 3, Number 48. So what we learn about Bucky in Volume 5 and in the subsequently published Captain America and Bucky series throws a lot of what we thought we knew about Bucky out the window. Not only was he not the wide-eyed young teenager he was portrayed as in the Golden Age books, but he was actually an expertly trained killer that was specifically assigned as Cap's partners because he'd be willing to do the things that Cap simply wouldn't do. 
We also see this background told in the Young Allies Comics 70th Anniversary Special One-Shot that was published in 2009 and written by Roger Stern. Now, it's been reported that Stan Lee was adamant about keeping Bucky in the grave because he detested teenage sidekicks. And perhaps that's why early proposals to bring him back never got very far. You might remember, Rick, that back in uh, uh, podcast episode 35, we talked about some of those ideas with Tom Brevoort, who had been, by and large, opposed to any efforts to resurrect Bucky. Yep. Yeah, that was a great conversation. I mean, Tom went on, it was a, a funny story about Ed Brubaker being um, uh, thought of, considered for the Captain America series. And he had to kind of pitch what he wanted to do. One of the things he wanted to pitch was bringing back Bucky. And Tom was against it uh, and said, look, you know, you need to explain to me how you're going to make this work because this is, his fear was that bringing back Bucky would just be something that would be um, a short-lived kind of, you know, wow kind of thing. And then, you know, it would go away. And it was, um, how do you make this become a bigger story? And Ed sold him on it mm-hmm. and like really convinced him on it. And, yeah. um, and Tom was so happy to be wrong. As he as he pointed out in our conversation uh, in episode thirty five, which yeah, so definitely you know check that out. But yeah, it's it, it's interesting. Um, you know, Stan Lee didn't want it. Uh, future editor editor in chiefs didn't want it. Tom Brevoort didn't want it. And then here we are. Yep, because you know Brubaker found a way to overcome that opposition, and but he had to reintroduce Cap sidekick to the modern world to do so. It required turning him into someone and something far different than how he had originally been portrayed. And yet, when you think about it, all those hand grenades and firearms Bucky used to carry around in, in, uh, in World War II in the Golden Age books, well, in retrospect now, it all makes a bit more sense. Yeah, no, it does. It, it, it certainly makes a whole lot of sense. And, and again, we're not going to get into... Bucky turning into the Winter Soldier, that is a, a huge retcon. That is a bit obvious. But I love the fact, Bob, that you brought up the the, the more subtle, less obvious that um, retcon of Bucky didn't, wasn't this young teenage kid that uh, happened to come across, you know, and uh, no, yeah. he was he was a plant. Yeah, you know, he was right. a plant who was going to get his hit, you know, the black ops, get his hands dirty, wet works uh, kind of guy. And uh, which made sense, which he, you know, that he led was easy to become a character like Winter Soldier. So it kind of set the stage for that. Bingo, bingo. Yeah. And that, Rick, segues us in to the next retcon. All right, Bob. So that brings us to number two. Don't believe everything you read. Oh, Rick, Rick, you know, now look, we kind of danced around this last one, you know, throughout the entire show. Um, The one big retcon challenge. I mean, what do you do with all the golden age stories? I mean, the hundreds and hundreds of them that we know existed, but that often don't quite fit within the Marvel universe that, you know, began to expand and deepen and get more and more complicated ever since the publication of the Fantastic Four back in August 1961. 
And after that, of course, that launched the Silver Age. And then, you know, things increasingly got more complicated. Mm -hmm. So, you know, Roy Thomas really had an elegant solution to the problem of this discontinuity between these two really distinct bodies of work, between everything that came before in the golden age of comics and everything that came after. You know, he made the case that unless a narrative was retold post Fantastic Four number one, then it was understood to have been merely a fictionalized account of real world events that took place in the Marvel universe. So let's pause there because that that's huge. It is huge, right? Right Right? now, now all of a sudden, if Marvel had not um, touched on it again in the current Marvel universe, then you could just you you could just write it off to say, well, it was it was just a fictionalized um, uh, account of of what happened. Right. Yeah. Right. Uh, That's brilliant. It is really. I mean, it's it's they're not saying it didn't happen. Mm-hmm. Right. But they're just saying that, well, it's it's like anything when you, you know, you you watch a, a made for TV special about, uh, you know, uh, a, a real world event, you know, and some of the eh, some of the details might have been changed to, you know, make it more sexy. You know, this thing called artistic license. So, so can you can you give an example? Because right. I, I I would love to hear you know, how he did this. All right. Well, that's fair. Right. So, uh, and again, he, he did it a lot. Right. But, but it's also been this, this method or this strategy, I should say that has been woven warp and wolf throughout the entire post silver age uh, uh, approach to comics and, and continuity. So let's, let's look at one of my guilty pleasures, uh, the young allies, right. I want to illustrate how this, this solution impacts continuity. So among my prized possessions are some of the original Sentinels of Liberty badges, uh, timely hawked for a dime back in the uh, early 1940s. I mean, there has been some good posts in the uh, Captain America comic book fans Facebook group if you want to learn more about that promotion. Uh, It was probably one of the first that was associated with comics. But in any case, today uh, we refer to Captain America as the Sentinel of Liberty, right? I mean, when you think Sentinel of Liberty, you think Captain America. Mm-hmm. But back in those early issues of Captain America comics, it was Bucky Barnes and his teenage friends. So there was Jeffrey Jeff Vandergrill, there was Patrick Knuckles O'Toole, Henry Tubby Tinklebaum, and George Carver Washington Jones. Wash. Uh, they were the original Sentinels of Liberty. So, and, and while the Sentinels uh, were featured occasionally in, in some of the Captain America comics uh, early adventures, like number five and number six and number nine, they eventually added Thomas Toro Raymond, the human torches sidekick, and became the Young Allies. Now, they had their own title, starting with Young Allies Number 1, which came out in June 1941, and it ran for 20 issues. And the Young Allies were also featured in a number of other titles, like Kid Comics, Marvel Mystery Comics, Complete Comics, Amazing Comics, Mystic Comics, and, and Submariner Comics as well. So there were pretty good stories, lots of rollicking, fun adventures. But as we talked about earlier in the show, it always seemed, well, you know, a bit strange that Steve Rogers would take on a partner that seemed, you know, what, 12, 13 years old? Right. Yeah, right. And it was just as weirdly disturbing to have a bunch of teenagers running missions in, say, like Nazi Germany or North Africa or, you know, Imperial Japan. 
But, you know, as we discussed earlier, Bucky, at least since volume five of Captain America, we know wasn't really the wide-eyed young teenager who stumbled into Steve Rogers' tent and discovered him, you know, uh, changing into his Cap uniform. Uh, it's a revelation that forced Cap, apparently, in the comics, the early comics, to take him on as a sidekick. But no, no, no. We learned that was simply a cover story for propaganda purposes, to provide stories to America's youth during the war so they'd have someone like themselves to look up to. Characters that looked like them, that talked like them, right? And we talked to Tom Bravort uh, back in, uh, what was it? Uh, pod- episode 35. Yeah, episode 35 about how important uh, it is for every generation of comic readers uh, to have characters with whom they can identify. But wouldn't it be nice if this whole propaganda thing was maybe you know, explicitly described somewhere. So, you know, we knew that those old timely stories weren't meant to be taken literally. You know, as it was, Rick, it it was uh, described explicitly. So we see this hinted at occasionally in other titles. For example, in issue four of Truth, Red, White, and Black, uh, the miniseries, uh, we see Isaiah Bradley reading a copy of Captain America Comics number one. So in in, in a story, we see those propaganda books from the timely golden age series being read by characters in the marvel universe it's kind of mind-blowing if you think about it right right yeah or in uh you know uh i I like to collect the uh the afes the american armed forces exchange system promotional giveaways they used to pick them up for free they'd have them at the uh you know the department stores on military bases and marvel had this arrangement and you could go and get them and i would always go pick up a a handful of them because nobody ever else nobody else ever seemed to, to do it so i have a bunch of those but in in one particular one captain america the first avenger um, which, you know, they published back in 2011, we see a young paratrooper in an aircraft 24,000 feet above the English Channel reading an issue of a Captain America comic book uh, to quell his nerves before jumping into the fight. So again, we see these, you know, time and time again. Yeah. You know, and it's, it's interesting because um, I, I think it, unless unless you're in the military or related to someone in the military, I would say the vast majority of our listeners probably weren't aware of that particular issue so so thanks for bringing that to light and Mm -hmm. and probably weren't even aware of this whole exchange system where big marvel did these these comics so um that's pretty cool yeah marvel's had this arrangement with the department of defense for a gosh you know going on 15 years i think i I think it still goes on you can still pick up these free books on on uh, on base so anyway, while, while these kinds of distinctions between the timely Golden Age comics and their modern counterparts help deal with a lot of continuity problems, they also, I think even probably more importantly, they provide a means to address some of the awkwardness uh, that a lot of modern readers experience when they read how characters were portrayed in the 1940s. And I know you're not a, you're not a big uh, Golden Age fan, Rick, but um, I think most people who pick those up are a little shocked uh, when they read about some of those things. And we've discussed that, you know, in, mm-hmm. the, in, the, in the interview we did with, uh, with uh, Richard Stevens, mm-hmm. we, we talked about how the characterization of, of, you know, Cap in particular during World War II is very, very different from how it is uh, in the, you know, the comics we read today. Right. So, you know, in, uh, for example, in, in, 
an all winners squad 70th anniversary special. I don't know if you ever read that, uh, that book. No, uh, I did not. Those, those 70th anniversary specials were pretty cool stories. Uh, and, and the all winners squad uh, one shot, we see uh, Namor, you know, the Submariner threatening to call forth the fury of Atlantis's avenging son on this guy named Otto Binder. Uh, because of the way uh, Otto had written the script for a forthcoming issue of All Winners uh, comics, which which was a real Golden Age series, with that Binder Binder had worked on, and you know so Binder was was actually a real writer, not just a fictional writer. Right, he he was a real writer for a number of timely's Golden Age stories. Right, so Captain America comics he wrote for Miss America comics, Human Torch comics, Submariner comics. Marvel mystery. He even wrote for Young Allies, among several other um, titles. So apparently Namor was upset that this, uh, quote, pulp hack, unquote, binder was portraying him as always being angry and arrogant, which is kind of, uh, uh, you know. So he was uh, angry that he was always <laughs> being betrayed as angry and arrogant. Right. You know, so the human torch, you know, he sort of leans over and explains to Bucky, who at this point was was Fred Davis, that, uh, quote, Miss America who's another one of the characters in this story, uh, gives Mr. Binder considerable leeway in his adaptations of our adventures. It's called artistic license, Bucky. So, you know, again, this is kind of funny because we know exactly that Namor was portrayed in the golden age and, and ever since for that matter, as angry and arrogant. However, modern explanations uh, or retcons of how characters were portrayed in those earlier stories often well, they were treated more seriously in some of these, these later stories. So, for example, um, we haven't really, I don't think we've covered any Invaders stories yet in our podcast, have we? Rick? Yes, we have, Bob. Have we? we oh, oh, yeah. We did? Yeah, we did the uh, the annual. Oh, you're right. We did do the annual. Okay. I'm, I'm surprised you, you forgot about that, Bob. That was episode 62, oh, uh, where we covered that, that 1977 story, Invaders Annual Number 1, which had kind of like it tied in with that Avengers. Oh, right, right, right. Avengers right? 71, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was a great Roy Thomas story with Golden Age artists. Yeah, all right, you're right. So uh, so let's like another example, right? Uh, maybe a more serious one. So uh, uh, for Invaders 26, which came out in uh, March 1978. So Roy Thomas tackled the inconvenient and ugly history of the forced internment of Japanese American citizens during, during World War II. And so this issue conveys the message really in no uncertain terms that this national policy was not only you know, antithetical to our country's professed values, but created a, a blight on our history. And it raises the question explicitly in Invaders uh, uh, 26 about you know, what it means to be a patriotic American. So the thing is, Rick, I mean, this story directly uh, addressed events that occurred, you know, what was it, 35 years earlier in Captain America Comics 38, back in, back in uh, May 1944, where Cap and Bucky discover this hidden Japanese base in the middle of Death Valley, right? And, and, and in that story, it really preyed on the fears at the time that led to things like the Japanese internment policy, this fear that the Japanese were hiding among us, right? And they were just preparing to strike and sabotage uh, from inside the country. Uh, it was the sort of thing that uh, was uh, that, that fear that was stoked by authorities and by bigots. And, uh, and so in Invaders 26, uh, which is a great story, uh, it continues over in Invaders 27, Bucky has to uh, rescue Toro, who's been injured, and he needs to find this, uh, this Japanese surgeon 
who uh, had a practice in California, but his house had been essentially bought out by uh, somebody who took advantage of the situation. And then uh, Bucky has to track down Dr. Sabuki to, to save Toro's life. And, and he's been interned in a, one of these, of these camps. So again, it's, uh, it's, it's taking uh, a modern look at what happened in the golden age history. And, and we can see that well, the way things were played out in, in the Golden Age books weren't real history, right? They were just propaganda vehicles. And, and the way things really were, were the way things were in Avengers uh, 26. Mm-hmm. So another example comes from uh, the, the anniversary special, the 70th anniversary special for Young Allies, another one shot, as well as the, there's this four issue miniseries called Captain America Forever Allies that came out in 2010. Now, both of these uh, both of these stories were written by Roger Stern, and they alternate back and forth between uh, modern events and, and what happened in World War II. And both of these explicitly state, uh, more so perhaps than in any other Marvel comic, that the Golden Age stories published by Timely weren't meant to be taken as literal history. Again, they were to be understood as propaganda developed by the U.S. government in order to, you know, uh, motivate the war effort. So in, in the first of these accounts, this is the, the, the 70th anniversary special, Bucky visits Knuckles and, and Wash, uh, Washington Carver, right? Now they're both old men and they reminisce about one of their last wartime adventures. And then we see the real, the real young allies, not the ones that were portrayed in the comic books back in the 1940s, but, but the real ones, right? Uh, and they're meeting in Paris in August, 1944. They're getting ready to embark on a new mission. Um, and they're not, they're not at all similar, you know, but they have similar names and they look kind of the same, but Stern, he takes real pains to point out that these are young men. They're not boys. They're, they're not 12 and 13 year olds. They're professionals and they're warriors. Um, not, not at all like they were portrayed for entertainment purposes in kid comics or young allies, or even in Captain America comics. So Knuckles is a soldier, right? And, and Tubby, Tubby, Tubby Tinklebaum is actually Hank and he's a Marine. And both he and Jeff, uh, who was in naval intelligence, are detailed in working in the Office of Strategic Services, the precursor of the CIA. And Wash uh, is, in fact, Lieutenant Jones, one of the Tuskegee Airmen who would go on to retire as an Air Force colonel. I mean, of all of them, Washington Carver Jones is perhaps the most critical about the way he was portrayed back in the timely Golden Age stories. You know, he was always portrayed as a bumbling, scaredy cat. You know, minstrel-looking racial stereotype. Yeah, but, you know, it's and he has every right to be the one most upset. Absolutely right. I mean, if you go back and you read those comics, it's it's really awkward for a modern reader. And Stern demolishes that characterization, and for that reason, the comic book is that this particular uh, one shot I think is must must read uh, uh, story. It's 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 actually considered the first real appearance of Washington Carver Jones in the in the Marvel universe. Interesting. Yeah. So um, you know those differences are they're they're considered further in that Forever Allies uh, series. You know, in that in that story, Bucky, who who is at this point Captain America, tries to solve a, a cold case uh, left un, unresolved by the Young Allies. And from the get-go, Bucky makes it well known that the old Young Allies comics were just a gimmick cooked up by the U.S. government's propaganda office to raise morale. And he makes no bones that, and this is a quote from from, uh, Stern's writing, it drove us nuts the way we were portrayed. Those comics made us look like we were the dead-end kids versus Hitler. 
Who are the so, dead end kids? The dead end kids. That's a good question, Rick. Was it, wasn't that like Spanky and his gang? No, I don't think so. The little rascals now? Mm-mm. Gee, Bob, think you could have done some research for this episode? <laughs> Uh, I'm looking it up. Oh, I'm looking it up. The Dead End Kids were a group of young actors from New York City who appeared in Sidney Kingsley's Broadway play Dead End in 1935. Huh. Well, there you go. All right. Well, there you go. The Dead End Kids, a bunch of actors, right? Mm-hmm. So anyway, the, the, the long and short of it, Rick, is that efforts like these to retcon uh, not just the stories portrayed in the Golden Age Timely books, but the way the characters themselves were portrayed in those stories helps us address some of the ways that even Cap was portrayed back in the 1940s, especially his behaviors or statements that, that seem wildly discontinuous, like wildly different from the way the cap has been portrayed since he woke up from the ice. Mm-hmm. I mean, thanks to these retcons, we can unequivocally say that like our cap is the real cap. And the cap that we read about in the golden age is just some sort of, I don't know, weird fictional character that a lot of people had their hands in, but it, and there may have been some similarities, but it wasn't the real cap. So let's, let's pause there for a second because, um, I, I love, first of all, as someone who grew up in the modern age, reading about Steve Rogers post-World War II, post-Frozen, the superhero cap as opposed to the super soldier cap, these, this retcon, uh, uh, or, you know, these retcons, I should say, because there was more than one that, that give, you gave plenty of examples. Um, I appreciate these. You know what I mean? Because I'm mm-hmm. I'm just not a, a big golden age fan. So to me, these um make sense. They're they they explain away some discrepancies or some things that were written back in that time period 80 years ago that made sense. You know, sure, we'll have a 12-year-old kid come out there on the battlefield, you know. Um, so it explains some things. Um, and it sets some right, some some wrongs, you know, of how some of these characters were portrayed, like you just talked about Wash, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, I'm good with all this. I'm I'm really fine. And I think it's smart writing to go in and do this retcon. I say all that because maybe we need to have a counterpoint on the show. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Maybe mm-hmm. we need to have somebody who's on like who who collects golden age stories, who who loves golden age cap, who says, no, there was no, it was always Steve Rogers. There was never, you know, my issues uh, of Captain America from the 1950s. They were written to be Steve Rogers. They are Steve Rogers. Right. You can't yeah. tell me that this mm-hmm. these prized possessions in my, you know, that I have yeah. is is oh no, that's William Naslin. Oh no, that's you know that's right. one of the others. Um, I, I would imagine there's there's a, there's some people out there that that take that approach. Oh, absolutely, and I think you know we have these debates often in the uh, in the Facebook group, right? Where um, some folks just you know they think ah, oh, it's it's much ado about you know nothing, right? It's uh, it's a big nothing burger. There's no reason there's no reason uh, to jump through these hoops, right? It's just 
Right. And they're right in some respect, right? Because it's all, they're all fiction, mm-hmm. right? I mean, it doesn't matter if they were published, uh, you know, Symbol of Truth that came out, what, I don't know, a few weeks ago, right? And, uh, or Captain America Comics number one. I mean, that's all fiction. But the way that I think Roy Thomas set um, set the strategy for how Marvel would uh, sort of bridge, try to bridge the old stuff, which there's a lot of stuff in there that's really hard to like, how can, why, why Steve Rogers wouldn't act that way. I mean, he wouldn't torture people to get information out of them or he wouldn't kill a million Japanese by collapsing a tunnel under the ocean on top of them. I mean, he wouldn't do those sorts of things, uh, at least the cap that we know. So it's very hard, I think, for, uh, you know, the average reader, perhaps, or the casual reader to reconcile those. And so Thomas set a strategy that allowed Marvel to uh, allow folks to enjoy both without maybe struggling with, like, how do you reconcile those things? Mm-hmm. Right. Right. I mean, yeah. one of the profoundest, you know, discussions we always have is like, well, would Cap carry a gun? Would Cap use a weapon? Right. And we've done whole shows about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and whole stories have been written about that. Uh, and it's true. You go back to the golden age and certainly you see Cap using weapons of all kinds, right. uh, you know, including, you know, flying in an airplane and using the machine guns on an airplane. So how do you reconcile that? And you reconcile that by saying, ah, that was, that was propaganda. all good propaganda. You know, those were real stories, but they didn't tell real event. They didn't, you know, literally tell the story. They were fictionalized accounts. So, you know, that's kind of interesting because we're 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 saying no that was just propaganda back during the war well guess what it was it was i mean it literally was propaganda back then i mean yes you you got you got cap and bucky selling war bonds and scrapping metal and you know uh do your part i mean it was all propaganda back then you know uh, with entertainment obviously you know, and, and, you know, hopefully some, some good moral stories and, but it was, it was entertainment that was also propaganda. Right. And so for us now to say, well, that was, that was propaganda. It's not wrong. It's not wrong. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that's kind of the beauty of it. Right. I mean, it, it, it's not just making something completely up. I mean, this strategy isn't, isn't just cut out of whole cloth, you know, from or pulled out of the ether, they really were propaganda. And so, you know, we're just saying that it's, it's just propaganda within a fictionalized universe as well. All right. So let's get to the last one, Bob. Um, We've, uh, we've, we've had a a lot of fun uh, going through 10 through six and part one of this, of the stories. And now uh, here we are five through one, we're getting, to the last one and bob this one is retcon of a retcon yeah i you know uh i struggled over like how 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 to describe this right so i mean if you think about it there were two major continuity gaps that were still lingering out there even after steve Englehart retcon the 1950s cap in issues 153 to 156 to explain how there could have been a cap and a bucky in the 1950s, if Steve Rogers had already been frozen for, what, nearly a decade, and Bucky had been long dead. I mean, if you're hazy on how that retcon went down, be sure to check out podcast episode six, where we review that story, and also check out our interview with Steve Englehart in podcast episode 52. 
So, you know, as we just discussed, if all those old timely comics were just fictionalized accounts of real Avengers, essentially wartime propaganda, there were still unanswered questions about who exactly was wearing Cap and Bucky's uniforms from mid-1945 until, what, late 1952. And then there was also that matter of Avengers number 71 that showed Cap, Human Torch, and Namor fighting side by side in Paris in 1941 against three members of the Avengers, plucked from the future by Kang and the Grand Master. You know, we're not going to address the first one. Now, that's uh, one of those retcons we pledged to skip over because, well, you know, it's an obvious one. At least if you've read the What If number four or Captain America 215, Captain America Annual number six, and the four part miniseries Captain America the Patriot that came out in 2010. But we absolutely must consider the second, which Roy Thomas addressed by introducing the Invaders team in mid 1975 with the publication of Giant Sized Invaders number one. Uh, and just 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 as a reminder, Rob, we did cover that. It was in it was in episode sixty two. Uh, Invaders Annual Number One. Oh gosh, you know that seems like so long ago, Rick. It was. It you was. Know? Gosh. That, uh, that 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 issue came out in at the end of twenty twenty one. Okay. Yeah, that was like forever ago. I know. Yeah. Holy cow. Oh, well. So anyway, now, like an awful lot of Cap fans, I was a big fan of the Invaders comics when I was a kid. I mean, uh, did you love the Invaders? Did you like them? Not no. your thing? Or, no, no, it wasn't my thing. Again, I, I wasn't yeah. a World War II guy. Yeah. Right. I, had, I had a couple issues. Um, mm -hmm. I remember distinctly this one issue um, that had the bullet it was like oh, oh yeah the um, blue bullet or something yeah, yeah. like some mm -hmm. big big gigantic yeah. bullet shaped guy that was yep. chasing around people right and and i think if i want to remember correctly human torch was injured uh in a in a world war ii hospital i i, I don't know namor was in it cap was in it mm -hmm. i think frank robbins was the artist mm-hmm and I think that kind of turned me off. Yeah. I, I was, <laughs> a lot of I, folks, yeah. I, I mean, he, he never, as far as I'm concerned, he could never draw Bucky's hair. Ah, That was always a problem. You know? gotcha. He always had that 1970s sort of uh, Yeah, band I mean, boy. some people love him, some people hate him. Yeah. Um, but I just remember being a kid in the 70s, and I had that issue, and I read it several times, and I was like, eh. Yeah. Now, I, I love the Invaders. And I, I especially loved, I mean, the covers uh, of the Invaders, I think, were, uh, they had some amazing covers. Um, the, the, I think the Blue Bullet Guide one, notwithstanding. But in any case, <laughs> you know, I, I loved, I loved the World War II st stories. I always, you know, you know, you know, I was in the Marines, right? This is before, obviously, I went in the Marines. Uh, but I always had that proclivity that I, I liked that stuff. And, and I loved all the rosters of the Golden Age heroes, you know, like the Invaders and uh, the Liberty Legion and, and the Crusaders. I mean, they were all assembled to face off against the Nazis. I mean, how can you, uh, you not root against the Nazis, right? And they're supervillains. They had uh, the Red Skull. Mm -hmm. Notice how I enunciated that, Rick? I didn't say yeah. Red Skull. Yeah. yeah. So the, the Red yeah, well Skull. Done. Right. Uh -huh. Master Man, Warrior Woman, Baron Blood, that you man, Agent Axis, Lady Lotus, and even Frankenstein himself. It's Frankenstein. <laughs> oh, there's a classic right there. 
So, and like most readers at the time, at least most kids, at least, I assumed that all these characters and their adventures were, you know, embellishments of what had gone on in those timely golden age stories. You know, as it turns out, Rick, not so much. Sure, like Cap and Bucky, the Human Torch, Toro, Namor, and several other characters like the Wizard and Miss America and the Patriot, they had appeared in several timely titles in the 1940s. But this is this, this is what surprised me when I, you know, later on dug into this. They almost never appeared together in the same adventures. What? Yeah, I mean, obviously, Cap and Bucky and, and uh, Human Torch and Toro. You know, um, you know, despite Cap, Namor, and the Human Torch appearing uh, together on the covers of 20 all-winners comics and 10 issues of all-select comics, these three only appeared together in two issues at the end of... Um, the all winners comics run. What? That's crazy. Yeah. Issues 19 and issues 21, both of which came out in 1946. So after the war was over. So you're saying we see all these covers that have cap and torch and Namor together. It was more of like a, here's our most recognizable characters. We're going to put them all together, but inside they're, they're not. All right, they're in different, separate, unrelated, unconnected stories. Uh, yeah, exactly. Which Talk makes about sense. It. I mean, I get, I, hey, listen, as a marketing guy, I get that. But as a, I'm not a historian, right? Yeah. So I just always saw those because I never read the stories in, in neat that I always thought that they were together. That's interesting for, for guys who don't read Golden Age comics like right. me to find that out. You know, people today, I mean, like readers today, if you went out and you bought a comic, and, uh, and, and people do complain about this all the time, right? There's a comic cover that has art on it showing something that has nothing to do with what goes on in the story. Mm-hmm. People get all bent out of shape about that, right? Wow, but back then, forever, yeah. yeah, back then it was super common. All these Alex Schomburg covers that showed these three guys jumping in or fighting the Nazis or the, or the Japanese had nothing to do with the stories uh, in, in, inside the books. Interesting. Yeah. So when Roy Thomas launched the Invaders title in in 1975, he really had two goals. The first was to showcase some better supervillains, right? I mean, of all those I rattled off. Like the Blue Bullet? Well, okay. There there is some. But I mean, if you go back and you read like some of the Golden Age stories, they they always they were battling, you know, uh, Tojo and and Nazi uh, and Hitler and Mussolini. And of course, those were some of the main villains. But like try to like. Other than the Red Skull, try to recall some of the villains uh, from the Golden Age and or go back and look at them. And you're like, wow, those are super lame. I mean, yeah, really? No, I, yeah, you're yeah. absolutely right. I mean, the villains, you, you know, Master Man, Warrior Woman, you know, and Baron Blood. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Those are right. much, much better villains. They are. And none of them, with the exception of the ones I rattled off, of course, Red Skull came out of Captain America comics, mm-hmm. what, number six, right? The, the, Johann Smith, right? The, the real Red Skull. And Frankenstein's family, oddly enough, that was also in a timely golden age. Frankenstein. Frankenstein was in USA Comics number 13. He went up against uh, the Captain Bucky. So, uh, you know, Roy Thomas wanted to liven up the Rube's gallery a little bit. And he did so, you know, as you said, great characters, Master Man, You Man, uh, Warrior Woman. These were barren blood for crying out loud, right? Mm -hmm. These were great, great characters. But, you know, the second reason was perhaps even more profound. And that was to explain how Cap, the Human Torch, and Namor could possibly 
than fighting with each other, uh, fighting alongside each other when everyone knew that the Golden Age version of the invaders, the all winter squad, hadn't been a thing until after World War II. And, and if we've been paying attention all along to our cap-related retcons, we'd know that that would have been William Nasland as Cap and Fred Davis Jr. as Bucky, at least in, in, in All Winners Comics 19. And by the time All Winners Comics 21 was out, it would have been Jeff Davis, uh, Jeff Mace as, as Cap, right? And Fred, again, as Bucky. So there weren't actually any stories during the Golden Age when Steve Rogers as Cap was fighting alongside the Human Torch and Namor. So, like, how do you how do you deal with that? So I the, don't know, right? <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, Roy how Thomas, Roy Thomas is going to tell you how we dealt with it. So, the basic premise of the Invaders was was pretty straightforward, right? All those covers are showing the characters fighting alongside each other during the war, but turned out they were in fact confirming what we already suspected: Cap, Bucky, the Human Torch, Toro, Namor had indeed they had fought together during World War II, just as Thomas had hinted at in Avengers 71, and just as they had been portrayed on so many of those Schomburg covers, it's just those stories had never been written about in the Golden Age titles, and we're still waiting to be told. That was the key, right? All those things had happened, and they were hinted at in the covers. So when we see Cap fighting alongside Namor and Human Torch on the cover of, you know, um, you know All Winners number one, right? That actually happened. But just nobody had written about it yet. That's brilliant. Yes, isn't it? It so is. In his introduction to uh, the giant size uh, invaders, number one, Thomas made it definitively clear that any timely Golden Age stories um, were to be understood as fictionalized accounts of what those heroes had actually been up to in the 1940s, you know, put out again to support the wartime propaganda. And they were only to be considered fictionalized unless they were subsequently verified in a forthcoming invaders story. So that's brilliant, right? So it is. It's like, yeah, yeah, if you want to read the real stories that happened, Mm -hmm. you need to read the upcoming invaders series. Yeah. So yeah, it's brilliant, right? Uh, It's a great marketing scheme, number one, but it's also a great way to address continuity. So basically, in other words, what he was saying was that the invaders' stories were actually retelling the actual events that happened, while all those original timely Golden Age stories were really kids' bedtime stories, uh, written by writers that were employing a lot of artistic license. So, like, we see this convergence, right, um, of these two continuities, the Golden Age and um, the modern stuff in Invaders number 16. So in that issue, we see the invaders infiltrate Hitler's Berchtesgarden castle. Now, if you remember, it's the very same castle that we saw them attacking on the cover of All Select Comics number one, way back in September 1943. And and that cover back on All Select Comics number one had absolutely nothing to do with any of the stories in that issue. But now we know that that story was true, the way it was depicted on the cover of that issue back in 1943 that story is finally told in invader in invader 16 brilliant it's brilliant right so everybody who loved those schomburg covers could say oh gosh yeah they were lovely artistically beautiful but meaningless in the context of the golden age stories but now they're no longer meaningless because 
stories are told in the invaders. So I love this approach. You know, the way Thomas instituted this strategy to bridge the golden age and subsequent continuity. And then other writers like Stern leverage as a means to address some of the awkwardness around the behaviors and, and the characterizations of, of the way the characters were treated in the golden age. So ultimately, I think thanks to Thomas, we can confidently affirm, as I said earlier, that Captain America, the one we know today, never really did those things he was portrayed of doing back in the timely stories, you know, torturing prisoners during interrogation or mm -hmm. shooting weapons or committing mass murder, or even as this has happened also in the golden age stories, using somewhat demeaning language toward ethnic or racial groups. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is, this is great stuff. Um, and if we were ranking them, Maybe this was number one. I mean, like, that's just so cool to to take these covers that never had stories um, for the comics inside and write stories about them and say that the other stories were propaganda because they didn't fit the continuity or they, they weren't, you know, respectful for modern time. Mm -hmm. And then here are the here are the real stories. I got to tell you, comic books are fun. This, this is just fun stuff, right? I mean, there's there's something for everybody here. And um, I love the fact that, uh, you know, we have these brilliant writers that see areas that need to be addressed and come up with these clever, uh, interesting, uh, fun stories to, to address them. I mean, you know, I... I'm not a purist, right? I'm, I'm not going to be like, well, you can't touch that story. Um, if, if it makes, if something else comes later that kind of heightens something or makes, makes something uh, a little bit more interesting or explains something, I'm all for it. And Bob, I got to say, you outdid yourself with this research, my friend. This was uh, uh, great stuff that you put pulled together um, to, to kind of take us through all of these interesting retcons uh, over the, you know, the last 60 years. You know, here's the thing. I think a lot of folks, not a lot of folks, but we do have debates in the in the Facebook group about, you know, retcons, right? Are the, is it a is it a symptom of lazy writing, or uh, I think what you're saying is it it, it can often be a, a sign of very creative writing, right? I mean, mm -hmm. you you have to be familiar uh, with what happened uh, previously in order to do a good job with a retcon. Um, I, I think it's. Personally, I think some of these retcons, at least the ones that we've explored, are very creative ways to deal with issues that allow the narrative to go in a, in a, in a, in a different direction and, and mm -hmm. maybe a direction that's more appropriate for the times or more interesting, you know, certainly without the retcon, without bringing Sharon back, right, without developing the character of Peggy and accounting for her relationship with, with Sharon and, and Steve Rogers, uh, without you know, dealing with the issue that like, how the hell would Steve Rogers, you know, get a 13 or 12 year old as his sidekick, right? Mm -hmm. All those retcons, they really improved the mythos. They really took the stories in different directions that um, were interesting and uh, made you want to continue to read. And I think that's what great writers do. And we've seen the work of some great writers here. Yeah, 100%. And to your point, if if these writers didn't go in and do these things with Sharon and Peggy and and Bucky, we wouldn't have these amazing characters that are part of the the mythos story now. Yeah, 
I mean, you know, I mean, sure, something else may have come along, but how interesting has it been to have Bucky uh, as as the Winter Soldier and and Sharon return as a as a major love interest and Peggy uh, explored further? Um, yeah, I mean, like this is great stuff. All right. Well, thanks again, Bob. This has been fun going through um, going through all of these, and I'm I. And we want to hear from the listeners. We want to hear your thoughts on any of these top 10 that we we've covered um, uh, over the last couple of episodes. But, you know, go on to the, the Captain America comic book fans Facebook group and share your thoughts. You know, uh, do you uh, do you agree? Uh, do you disagree? Do you have some that you feel like we left out? Um, by all means, we want to, we want to hear from you guys. Yeah. And if I made any mistakes, please let us know. I thought you were about to say it. If if there was any mistakes, that was Rick's part. (laughs) All right. Uh, what we got coming up, Bob, Uh, you know, I, next episode is, um, next episode is number 90. We're hitting the nineties, Bob the 90s yeah you know what I, I i thought would be cool for us to cover uh because we've been doing a lot of recent uh comics right because we've had captain america zero and symbol of truth and and now we've got sense of liberty coming up so we've got a lot of recent stuff uh we've certainly been covering the 80s with the whole grunwald uh captain series uh it's been a while since we've gone into the the way back machine bob so i'm thinking uh, we go back to 1968. Wow, that is way back, right? Yeah. Uh, and and we're gonna we're gonna cover um, a story featuring Black Panther. Now we thought this would be maybe a little timely because with the Captain America symbol of truth story, um, there is some some stuff going on with Wakanda. I, I thought it'd be uh, pretty cool to 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 look at the first time. Black Panther and Captain America meet. So we're going to we're going to go through the story of Tales of Suspense 97, 98 and 99 which leads to Captain America 100. So we're going to cover uh those four parts in next episode, in episode 90. So make sure you come back for that. Looking forward to this one, Rick. Yep. All right. Well, uh he's Bob Lucius, I'm Rick Verbanis. And you have been listening to another episode of the Captain America comic book fans podcast. Mm